Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Ozban, and here with my friend, Chabruta Aaron Gordon. Our dap today, Masachi Kutubot, Dav Kuf Yud, page 110. But we have a very, very long dap that is chock full of some good information. Uh, these next two dapim are actually very, very long. It's like almost like Kutubot's just tying up whatever it can and putting whatever it can in uh, this Masachat. So we're going to run through some Mishnayos uh, with a little bit of, with a sprinkling of Gemara today, is what I would say. Um, so now they have the six of Admon's uh, rulings. Um, so if somebody produces or has, can show uh, a, um, you know, a document that he owes something, you know, that his friend owes him money, right? And the borrower can show a document uh, that, uh, that the lender had sold him a field. So in other words, you have two people who have two different types of documents. One person can produce a document that, let's say we'll call them Ruven and Shimon. Ruven produces a document that Shimon owes him money. Shimon produces a document that Ruven sold him a field. Admon Omer, Admon says, Omer, right? The borrower can say, um, so Shimon would say, so he would say, how could I owe you money? Shimon would say to Reuben, because if I owed you money, right, you would have gotten that money when I sold you the field. In other words, that would have been part of the, I would have deducted part of the price. That would have been part of the paying you back, right? So it's, so that, that would be the claim that the borrower can make. Um, and so Admon is basically saying, therefore, we really just, that first document about the debt being old doesn't entirely make sense. But the Chachamim say, Maybe the lender was a pikeach. Remember, we had this word before, like a pikeach is somebody who's clever, right? And that he sold him the land. Because then he would be able to use it as a security. So in other words, the Chachamim say maybe the lender was being sort of very, uh, you know, he's being very, very smart here, right? And he was worried that the borrower might be able to hide other type of property or things like that, especially the movable assets that he might have. And so the debt would never would never be able to be paid back. So the lender sends him a field, right? So that he would have to sort of pay him back. That's what the Chachamim say. So the Gemara basically here is just going to try to explain, uh, you know, what's the reasoning of the Chachamim? Because as it says, Shepherd Ka'amar Admon, that actually uh, Admon really explains his his position seems to make more sense in the Mishnah. And so again, you know, it's one of these types of Gemaras where they sort of they give some added details in order to explain the Mishnah in a way that makes the Admon's position make sense and the way that the Chachamim's make sense as well. Okay, I'm picking up the next Mishnah, which I think is the last of Admon, actually. It is. Of it's all the those, last. the Mishnah, right, that had a quote his opinion. And again, we have him, you know, being clever, Admon himself being clever, as compared to, I would say, the Chachamim take a more, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to say plodding kind of approach, but you'll see the, the difference here. So we have two people who each have this kind of IOU document against each other, meaning that they each have borrowed from the other. 
חייב לך, כיצד אתה לווה ממני? If I was obligated to pay you back, how would you be borrowing from me? Meaning, clearly, according to Admon, right, clearly the second guy, um, uh, is it the second guy who says he's forging it? Meaning the implication is that you have a, you have a forged note here because you could not be borrowing from me because I owe you money already, right? And the Chachamim say that each of them will collect the IOU from the other. So, meaning, the Chachamim say in a very, like, kind of direct manner, you each have a Starchov, you each collect from the other. So that's what I mean. Plotting is not the right word, but it's very, um, kind of like, I feel like, by the book. And Admon says, well, this makes no sense. Now, I... I appreciate Admon here, right? Because it does make no sense. On the other hand, there's all kinds of ways that people handle money in, in, in you know, where someone could say, um, but I owe you money. He says, yeah, but right now we're over here. Can you lend it to me and I'll give it back to you, you know, when we get home or that type of thing. Meaning I, I can imagine a case where, in fact, despite the fact that one owes the other money, um, he still borrows from him anyway. Um as far as that goes. Now, the Gemara here is long and gets into a, a lot of, you know, what does it really mean when people have um, a, a promissory note against the other, right? Meaning uh, these IOU documents. Um, we're not going to get into it, but I, I wish we had time because I think that there's a, it's actually interesting in terms of this kind of like civil law of, of lending and borrowing is essential to you know, human functioning um, for better and for worse. And um, it's worth reading through just to see how the different cases play out, different kinds of borrowing and so on. Uh, Yardena, next Mishnah, I think. All right, next Mishnah. And now we're on to like a totally different subject. So these are just like a few Mishnahs to tie up the Masachat. There's three areas of land, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to marriage. Yehuda So there's the area of Yehuda in Israel, right? Transjordan, which is on the other side of the Yardin, which remember was what was settled by Ruben, Gad, and, and half of the uh, tribe of Manasseh, and the Galil. Remember, the Galil is like the northern part, and that's where many of the Tanayim, that was sort of the center of where the Mishnah was, uh, was composed. Ein Motin Meir Le'ir. So one cannot require, right? Someone cannot force his wife to move from a town to a town in another area. So in other words, if you live in Yehuda and you marry a woman from the Galil, you actually can't force her to move from the Galil to Yehuda. Now, this principle is very interesting because I think this means people probably primarily really married within their area. Like you didn't really marry people from far away. So, you know, like, Let's say in America, for example, you know, you have someone from L.A. or someone from New York and they get married to each other. That wouldn't happen if this was a halakhic consideration or wouldn't happen as easily. Um, right? Or from a city in one area to a city in another. But within the same area, you can say, you know, if you're from town, uh, if you live, let's say, well, your city's in the Galil. If you were from Tsipore, if the man was from Tsipore and the wife is from uh, Beit Shari, which was another place, right? He can force her to move uh, within the Galil itself. 
So, you know, that's what it's sort of saying. And it's an interesting um, idea. And I think we see from, we'll see from the discussion of the Gemara when it gets into more of these, that I think it acknowledges that people changing or not living where they're normally used to live is very difficult for people. Right? But you cannot move them from a town to a city or from a city to a town. So that piece is very interesting. In other words, if you lived in what was considered a town, you could be moved to another town within your area. If you, but you cannot do town to city or city to town, right? Uh, you cannot make somebody move from a bad dwelling, basically, to a good dwelling. But you, uh, but not from a, sorry, you can't, you can make somebody move from a bad dwelling to a good dwelling, but you can't make them go from good to bad. You can't even make somebody move from a bad place to a good place. Because a good, a good dwelling, it, 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 it like bothers, uh, uh, it, it's hard for a person who's not, uh, who's not used to that. And so essentially what the Gemara, you know, sort of talks about here is it gives that, um, particularly the statement of Rabban Gamliel, is that, uh, you know, they quote this teaching of Shmuel that says, that the change of routine is basically causes stomach illnesses. And I think, and then they quote some things from Ben Sira, which we've talked about before, which is sort of a book of wisdom. Uh, that gets uh, that was written at the end of by Rishon. You know, the, the Gemara here sort of acknowledges that change is very, very difficult. And I think it's a way of a Gemara also acknowledging that, like, when you're talking about marriage and what marriage is, making someone do a drastic change may not be a good thing for marriage. They don't say that explicitly, but I think that is partly, you know, that is what they're trying to say here, that these are not good changes to force somebody to do. Uh, listen, I think we all know nowadays, right, that it's one of the big stressors on life, moving, right? Even even without the potential implications or stress on a marriage, just the basic phenomenon of moving house is very stressful. I This Mishnah that you've been talking about, Yordana, it keeps it all kind of at home, right? Everybody here is moving from fairly local to fairly local. The next Mishnah, which I'm going to pick up now, uh, is talking about people... It's further afield, right? Those in Israel and those not in Israel. Israel meaning the land of Israel, obviously not the state. Everybody can, um, it says, can go up to the land of Israel, meaning you can force your family to make Aliyah. Um, you know, you can decide you're going to, the household is moving, and that's that, but you cannot do so to leave. You cannot compel your family to leave. And likewise, from within Israel, you can push everybody to move to, not just push, you can compel everybody to move to Jerusalem and not to leave Jerusalem. And, and it's, that's the case, whether male or female, meaning no, um, no spouse can force the other spouse to leave Jerusalem or to leave Israel. And likewise, you could, the wife is just as easily can, can compel the husband to make Aliyah or to move from within Israel to Jerusalem. So here we're no longer talking about the stressors of moving and that it's uncomfortable, but there's a, a Kedusha aspect here, right? That you can insist that you 
relocate to the to the place of greater kedusha. Well, well, I do want to mention one thing about the Eretz Yisrael question. The Mepharshim here, the Rishonim, are going to get into a big discussion about whether or not there's actually a positive commandment from the Torah to live in Israel. And so some will use, and that's a particular position of the Ramban, of Nachmanides, um, and some of them will use sort of this Mishnah as proof of that in a way, right? That, you know, if you can be basically forced, and what does forced mean? Like the rabbinic court would basically say, you have to move. That's because it's a fulfillment of a positive commandment. And we know that the rabbinic court can force people to fulfill a mitzvah. So just to pay, t- like, that's what the commentators are going to discuss here. And it's a very interesting discussion. Okay, sorry, go on. Right. No, no, and, and, and then, of course, the question of why you can compel if it's not a mitzvah is also interesting. Right. Okay, now we're going to have, that's you know, actually other... probably more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have now other locations, right? Again, where one can insist, or let's say, distinctions, halachic distinctions between different areas. Nasa isha be'eretz Yisrael, v'gersha be'eretz Yisrael, notein le'mimaot eretz Yisrael. If a man marries a woman in the land of Israel and they get divorced in the land of Israel, right then, and the ketubah itself doesn't say what the coinage is, what the currency is for the payment of the ketubah. You give her from the currency um, from the land of Israel. It's not specified, but that's like the obvious default. Nasa isha be'eretz Yisrael, v'gersha so we need to unpack this, right? So we have here a, a man marries a woman in the land of Israel. They get divorced in Kapotkia. Now, Kapotkia, or in English, it looks like it's pronounced Cappadocia, but I'm not sure. Um, it was a, it's a place in Asia Minor. It's just near the Euphrates. And at this time, or at one time anyway, it was an independent country, which then came under the domain of Rome. And the coins, the currency of Kapotkia, was, uh, were more valuable than the coins of Eretz Israel. And that's what you have to know here, right? That's the reality that you have to know here, because otherwise, why would it be? We're, we're going to see when you pay from Kapotkia and when you pay from Eretz Israel. In this case, the first case here is they marry in Israel, they get divorced in Kapotkia, but they pay the they pay the ketubah, he pays the ketubah in the Eretz Yisrael coins. And then the reverse, if you ma- they get married in Kapotki and they get divorced in Eretz Yisrael, he still pays the coins of Eretz Yisrael, right? which is a little bit puzzling, right? Because it's not just a default on, let's say, the the location of the marriage then, right? It does suggest a primacy of Eretz Yisrael, um, unless you want to say that it's a, you know, paying less because of the extra extra value to the Kapotkia coins. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel Omer, no ten lemi ma'od Kapotkia. No, but and that's exactly why we have a dispute here, where Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says that he should pay if they get married in Kapotkia and divorced in Israel, he should give the ketubah in the currency of Kapotkia. Um, you know, because that's those are the terms of the marriage. The fact that they happen to get divorced elsewhere shouldn't really matter. Of course, if both marriage and divorce take place over there, then she would get the ketubah in the, in the coins of Kapotkia. Um, the particulars of Kapotkia, I think, matter less, and the recognition that currency has different valuations. And if you don't specify in the ketubah what, which money, which currency you're using, 
then it becomes really uh, quite a challenge to figure out exactly what what the what's driving the value, right? Do you say it's in, let's say nowadays, right? Is the sum in dollars? Is the sum in shekels? And yes, one currency follows the other. We can always do an exchange rate, but one of the currencies is going to be driving this. When we get to, hmm, where is it? Baba Mitzia, I think, and Baba Batra, we will talk about this a fair bit more, about the different valuations of money. Um, I want to jump to the Gemara here and do a little bit about, because this is a really interesting business about one being able to force the other, one spouse being able to force the other to make aliyah. Um, it is not politically correct, I don't think, right, to be to suggest that this is um, uh, the default of the Gemara, but indeed it is. So it says here, um, in the Gemara, not too far from the beginning of the Gemara, Tana Rabbanan, hu omer lalot, vihi omer chulolalo, she doesn't want to go. Kofina talalot, he can force her to make aliyah. And if she says, no way, I'm not going, then she they can get divorced, but she is no longer entitled to her ketubah. She's refusing on grounds that are not considered legitimate grounds from a halachic perspective. She wants to make aliyah. He doesn't. You force him to make aliyah. And if he refuses, refuses, refuses to go, then they get divorced and he will pay the ketubah, meaning she's in the right there. And so she's entitled her money, and the divorce is, you know, unfortunate. He married. Let's say for who Let's say now they let's say they a couple lives in Israel, and she wants to leave, and he does not want to leave. Then you force her to make sure that she does not leave. Ve'im love, and if she insists that she's leaving, uh, that she's let me say this back carefully. He doesn't want to leave. She does want to leave. You have to make sure that she's not going to just up and go. Um, if and if she does, the divorce again, she will not be entitled to her ketuba. Again, she doesn't want to leave and he does. Um, he if he does, he's going to leave regardless, then he needs to divorce her and give her the ketuba. Of course, this. So it does happen nowadays where we have cases of aguna, aginut, where a husband you know, leaves Israel without paying the ketubah, without actually giving the divorce. I think that in many of those cases, the reason he's leaving in Israel is to run away from giving the, the divorce and the ketubah, but that's a separate issue. Um, let's talk a little bit about this kapotki issue, and then, Yerdan, I'm going to turn it over to you to wrap up the daf. Nasaisha, right? So this is, again, if somebody marries in Israel and gets divorced in kapotkiya, um, and he has to then pay the, the ketubah in the currency of the land of Israel, and vice versa, you still pay the land of Israel. So the Gemara says this is difficult because we have a contradiction within these teachings of the Mishnah about the currency that it should follow. The logic is that it would follow the place of the marriage. Katani, Alma, Buddha, Azlinan. Right? We should be following. The place of the shiabud, the when we recognize that the ketubah is a lien on the property of the man, then that's that's how it should be. It should follow the coinage or the currency of that of the location of the where the lien is placed, and presumably that would be the case in non ketubah property, um, you know, lo- lending and borrowing and and that kind of thing that would incur a lo- a lien. So 
the, the end of the Mishnah suggests that really the, it follows the divorce, not the place of the of the of the marriage to begin with. Now that would make sense if both followed both, right? Amar Rabba So here we say Rabba says it seems that this is a leniency in the in the nature of the ketuba that the husband can pay the lesser value, meaning the currency of Eretz Yisrael in both cases, whether we're talking about the location of the where they get married or the location of where they get divorced, because and and this is like a, a big you know punchline here because the ketuba is drabanan, and we know this. We've talked about it, the fact that it's drabanan, but the fact that we're going to implement it with leniencies because of that drabanan suddenly at the end of the masach it feels like wait really you're not gonna make sure that she gets that there's a standard of of location no it's always going to follow the leniency because it's rabbinic and with that your dana there's more here on kaputkin and i encourage you all to read it but i want your dana to have a chance to talk about this rabbinic side of things right so there's just you know one little thing here so they you know they they bring up this contradiction that it would seem uh, that, you know, at the beginning of the, uh, uh, you know, that part of the Mishnah looks like we go by where they live, right? Where, where the obligation was incurred. In other words, where they got married at the time of the Kaduba. Part of the Mishnah looks like that it has to do with the place of uh, collection, okay? And so how do they solve this? I'm a Rabbi, Rabbi says, Mikule Ketuba Shanukan. They taught here one of the leniencies of the laws of ketubah, right? In other words, since the obligation of playing ketubah is only rabbinic, so the chachamim were basically lenient, and they permit the husband to use whatever types of coins are basically worth less. Because sever ketubah de rabbanan, the Tanakhama of this mission basically holds that ketubah is, is rabbinic in origin, okay? And then it goes on to say, but Reverend Shumbin Amlio, who disagrees with the Tanakhama, Omer, Right, he gives her the coins from Kapotkia because he basically holds that the Ketuba is is uh, is de oraisa, and therefore it has to be treated with the same chumar of a regular debt, um, and you have to use the coins of the place where it was actually where the debt was actually uh, incurred. I, there's a lot more to say in this passage, but it's interesting to see. We only talked about this very, very briefly, um, you know, whether or not, and we have basically been working under the assumption that most of the rabbis in the Mishnah and the Gemara hold that the Ketubah is actually a Dirabanan. But there is one day that says that, no, actually, it is a Diraisa. They can find a way to, you know, say that the Ketubah actually exists from Torah law itself. This is sort of like the first passage that we've seen in the entire Masachet and we're on the third to last page that sort of says like, well, we learn the halacha one way if you say it's Terabadim, we learn the halacha another way if we say it's Terabadim. That argument didn't really seem to ever have a particular practical, or that Machloka didn't really ever have a practical halachic piece to it until we got to here, which I found fascinating. We're in Daf Kuf Yud, and finally it's practical. Before it seemed to just be theoretical and not really talked about. Um, I think also we should note, or maybe it seems just to me, that the fact that it's not addressed till now means that there it wasn't a practical difference, right? The institution of the ketubah, once it was instituted and accepted and became a widespread practice, the the question of you know its origins as Doraita Drabanan no longer matters. It's it's a given. There has to be a ketubah. 
Right. And I think that's why it's like one minor point that comes up in a Mishnah all the way at the end. I agree with you. It's not really a very practical difference. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rankus Reviews and all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP in our Talking Time at Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 